a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm really glad that uh, you gave this program a chance. Whether you're a longtime listener or a first-time, you know, curious person, how radical is this guy? Well, you're about to find out if you're in that situation. Again, thanks for giving us a chance here. I know there are a lot of voices out there. All of them, I believe, trying to speak the truth as best they understand it. I'm just one among many, but uh, but I take this seriously, seriously enough that I don't uh, insist that you believe anything I share with you. I don't uh, I don't have the answers. So I'm not going to pretend like, yep, I'm the smartest, I'm the best looking, you know, I'm the one who, who can tell you how to think. I really can't. All I can do is encourage you to think for yourself and to be skeptical, to question everything, and to think as clearly and independently as you can. After all, we live in a fairly complicated world. There's a lot of misdirection. There's a lot of misinformation. I'm trying to make you an unplayable piece because you choose to be an unplayable piece, somebody who cannot be manipulated. So that's what I'm all about. Anyway, thanks for joining me. My program is made possible by great sponsors like HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, as well as GarageDoorProServices.com. And I got a couple of things to start out with. Actually, one positive and and one to maybe seen as a little bit less than positive. So let's let's start with the positive first. Had a chance to watch uh, the Timcast podcast. Now, I, you know, I've, I've been aware of Tim Pool and I've seen, you know, excerpts of his show. And, and it really, the guy is actually a pretty good interviewer. I, I'm disappointed that I didn't start watching some of his interviews sooner. The reason I watched this latest one was it was a two-hour interview with Ammon Bundy as one of his guests. And, and in full disclosure here, this is not an Ammon Bundy campaign commercial, so I'm not, to, I'm not trying to, you know, stump. Ammon is running for governor in Idaho and I, I got to tell you, I have not seen any candidate for office be more direct and more forthright in their approach to, look, this is what I stand for. And when it comes to standing up to the woke cult, when it comes to standing against abortion and standing for innocent life, when it comes to drawing the line against uh, grooming children into sexual deviancy. This guy has courage that I've, I've not seen in hardly any other politicians. And some would say, well, that's not courage, that's stupidity. You can't, you can't be electable and, and stand for those kind of things. Which is a pretty good indictment of politics, if you think about it. I mean, they, they think that's, well, <laughs> that's an indictment of Ammon. He's the one who's out of touch. No, he's the one who I think is mu- much more in touch with reality. And it's the politicians who are, are flexible, as in slippery and flexible, like a spaghetti noodle, that, uh, you know, they'll bend whichever way they have to in order to appease this constituency or that constituency. Of course, that's why they're politicians rather than statesmen. But here's the thing that I found really encouraging, because, as you probably know, the Bundy family name is one that uh, is, look, people either love them or they have this visceral reaction, you know, and, and, and everything that they've heard about them in the media is, is almost uniformly negative. 
That's kind of the role that the media serves is it's, you know, to tell us who's bad, who do we hate, who do we direct our wrath against? Well, the Bundys have caught more than their fair share over the years. But one of the most encouraging things that I noticed was I was watching the the comments of people who were watching this interview. And some of these were, you know, I don't know. Tim's got uh, Tim Pool has like one point seven million subscribers to his podcast. That's a pretty good number. I mean, that's that's a legitimate player. And a lot of these people were meeting Ammon for the very first time. And one comment that I saw that just kept popping up, some variation of, this guy is really relatable, or this guy is nothing like what the media had told me he was like. Now, some people, you know, still disagreed with him on various policies. There were others who thought, well, you know, I think he takes his stance on abortion too far. But it was very reassuring to see that when people go to the source, in other words, instead of waiting for the, the media to filter his message to you, you know, through the appropriate filter, now this is what's right and here's what's wrong, they just listened to him explain where he stood. And it was uh, it was very encouraging to see how many people were favorably impressed. There were numbers of people who said, hey, if I lived in Idaho, I would definitely vote for this guy. Now, I don't know if he has a chance of, you know, of shifting the governor's race to the point that he could win. Personally, I kind of doubt it, but that's not because he doesn't have a valid stance. I think it's just because people have strayed so far from the truth and are so uncomfortable with the truth that it's it's just too scary for them. They, they couldn't conceive, oh, if we vote for him, well, everything would be crazy. And I can definitely see the powers that be are terrified because he is offering an actual alternative to more of the business as usual, but we'll wink, wink, you know, pretend like we care about you and and your lives, when really we're just trying to get you to vote to support us so we can tell you what to do. Anyway, I found it encouraging, and again, I don't mean for this to sound like a campaign commercial. To me, it just underscores the essential, critical nature of going to the source instead of waiting for someone to spoon-feed This is what you have to think about this person or about this issue. Living on borrowed light is rapidly becoming no longer an option. It's not something we can can do sustainably. We just can't unless you want to end up in a really bad place. So to those people who for the first time in their lives went, well, let's see what this guy's all about. And we're surprised to find he's he's really pretty down to earth guy. Well, there you go. It starts with going to the source. All right. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to share with you something else. And this is this is something I hesitate just a little bit, but I'm doing this for the sake of people whose love of truth is stronger than their attachment to their beliefs. In my show notes today, which you can access at thebrianhydeshow.com, there is a 27-minute long video that I would invite you to consider watching. And I don't know the name of the individual, the, the guy who's doing this video. He's, he's, uh, he appears to be like a farmer, maybe a rancher, spent some, fi- some fair time traveling the country and is commenting on the state of crops here in the U.S. as well as worldwide. And he makes a very strong case that while you may see plenty of food on the grocery store shelves right now, we are approaching a food crisis, not just here in America, but worldwide he makes the case that there is going to be legitimate famine. Now, look, I know nobody wants to hear that, right? You're thinking, oh, my day was going so good, and now Brian's sitting there talking about there's going to be a famine, and you know what that means, people starving and suffering and so forth. I know, it's, it's daunting. 
But this is the kind of thing I would rather share and be wrong than see these kinds of food shortages come to pass and not have warned the people around me. Because you still have time, you still have options to do something about it. And by the way, I want to tip my hat to my friend Terry for, for sharing this with me. Um, it's, it's a 27-minute long video. That's a pretty big you know, investment of time. But I'm confident if you take a look at it, you will definitely come away with a sense that, wow, maybe this is something I should you know, take some steps and, and do what I can to mitigate the possibility of real serious food shortages. And it could include you know, stocking up on food storage. It could include uh, making plans for uh, how you're going to grow more of your own food next year. I got to say, we tried it this year. This, I mean, this was the first year we really put some serious effort into a garden. Holy cow. It was, uh, it, it produced more food than I would have thought possible. I'm almost ashamed at how much food we were unable to use. Even though we were giving it away hand over fist, we were harvesting and, and canning and doing everything we could to preserve what we had and to use what we had. But it's, it's, a, great, it's a great thing to know how to do. And I don't know about you, I sure wasn't born with a green thumb, so there's a lot of trial and error that had to be learned, but very satisfying. Maybe you're going to learn to, or you're going to take on, you know, some small livestock. I sure love my chickens. They're my girls. Every day I go out and collect eggs from them, or every day that they follow me around like I'm somebody important. I don't know, I'm kind of flattered. So for what it's worth, if you are so inclined, if you want to, you know, if you're curious and just want to check this out, the video is linked in my show notes, which you can access at thebrianheidshow.com. And this is for October 20th, 2022. Just in case someone discovers this podcast, you know, ages down the road. Well, what one was that? That's where you'll find it. And my goal here is not to scare you or to cause alarm or to otherwise, you know, get to get your ear or your uh, day upended by putting, you know, scary things in your ear. I sincerely want to provide a warning where I think there's, there's a legitimate concern. And the gentleman who does this video it seems very down to earth. There's nothing sensational in his approach. And he really appears to have done his homework. So I, I think it's legit. I think his concerns are well placed. And that's the reason why I'm sharing them with you in hopes that you can find some useful information there and then do with it what you will. All right. We'll take a quick break. We've got a lot of great stuff to dive into. Just the other side of these messages. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. A quick thank you to GarageDoorProServices.com, one of my sponsors serving the St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, and Colorado City area. These are the guys you want to talk to for installation, service, and repair of garage doors, whether it's a commercial service or residential service. By the way, if you haven't thought about insulated garage doors, that makes a lot of sense, especially if, if you have food storage, for instance, and want to keep it as temperature safe as possible. Call 435-525-2773 in St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, or Colorado City, or go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. When you talk to them, could you please do me this favor and just let them know their message reached your ears via this program. 
So, I want to talk about solutions here for just a moment, and I'm going to dive into an article here from Larry Alton about how to plan for and survive an economic depression. I know that again. This is this, Brian. You're not you're not sporting sunshine today. You're actually talking about some scary stuff. I get that, and I know that things have been comfortable as long as most of us can remember. But historically, that's something that can actually change very quickly. If it did, what would you do? What kind of options would you have? See, Larry Alton points out nobody knows what the economy is going to do over the next couple of years, but right now a lot of signs point to a struggle. Now, whether that means a recession, a depression, or total collapse, that's anybody's guess. But he says you should be prepared for any outcome. So what's coming down the line? Well, he says it's unclear what will happen in the economy moving forward. However, one thing is certain, it's not going to be good. All the financial indicators suggest we are entering into risky territory. At no point in the last 65-plus years has there been inflation above 4% and unemployment below 5%. And the economy failed to enter into a recession within 24 months. It just doesn't happen. Throw in a severe debt crisis and supply shocks into the mix, and we have a real problem on our hands. So Larry Alton says, Economists and market experts foresee more inflation, higher interest rates, increased debt, and additional supply chain issues coming in the next 6 to 12 months. In other words, things are going to get worse before we can even think about things getting better. So the best case scenario would be a recession, a temporary blip on the way to an eventual recovery. But he says you shouldn't rule out the possibility of a depression or, while less likely, a total collapse. So let's talk about some smart ways you can prepare your family. Larry Alton says, as an individual, there's nothing you can do to stop a recession, depression, or collapse. In fact, there's not a person in the world who has that much power. At this point, we are all at the mercy of whatever happens. The only thing you can do is to prepare your family proactively. So here are some ways to financially prepare your family for whatever is to come. Number one, stockpile staples. Now he says that first suggestion may not seem like a piece of financial advice, but it is. In an inflationary marketplace where prices are rising and you suspect supply chain issues are coming down the line, stockpiling staple foods and goods is a wise decision that will provide you with financial relief in the coming months. When you don't have to worry about overpaying for things like rice, pasta, sugar, or flour, soap, toothpaste, and other necessities, you can reallocate that money to other areas. So that creates margin in your budget to be successful, and it allows you to focus on other things and conserve your financial resources. I like that he takes it beyond just food. Can I tell you a couple things that that I think are also worth stocking up on? In addition to soap, which you can never have too much of, Cooking oil. Now, you do need a cool, dark place to store it so it doesn't go rancid on you, but uh, cooking oil is a good thing to have. Tinfoil. Yes, to make hats to protect yourself from the thought detectors. I'm kidding. But tinfoil actually serves a very useful purpose, as do uh, baggies. I'm talking like freezer bags. If you have food that you want to preserve, stock up on these things. Have the stuff that you'll need. Toothpaste is another good one. And then it's like having a little a little Walmart. No, let's 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 upgrade. A little Target or or Costco right there in your own home. Yeah, you can't answer every need, but still, knowing that you can turn to your own stores definitely brings you some peace of mind, especially as those prices get higher. Secondly, Larry Alton 
suggests diversify your assets. He says you never want to be too heavily invested in one asset or investment type when a recession or collapse is coming. It can easily cause you to lose everything. You're much better off being diversified across multiple asset classes. Now, while it's likely that all of these assets will temporarily go down in value, it gives you more flexibility and increases your chances of an eventual recovery. Cryptocurrency, he says, is one asset class you should definitely keep your eye on. Now, currently, it's down, like everything else, but the decentralized nature of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital currencies make it an excellent option for diversifications. He says the key is to know when to invest. Learn how to analyze market opportunities using things like MT4 indicators, which he links to, to help you line up the right investments. Number three, he talks about building up an emergency fund. If you don't already have a minimum of six months' worth of cash in a savings account, you don't have enough. You need enough cash to allow you to survive for at least six months, even if you don't earn another dime during that period. So he says, do whatever it takes between now and the coming financial crisis to do this. As a reference, a family with a basic living expense of $5,000 a month, that's food, shelter, medical care, etc., will need a minimum of $30,000 in an emergency fund. And he says, don't underestimate this. Number four, he recommends pull out cash. While it's never happened in the United States, all you have to do is look at the financial collapse in Greece from a few years ago to understand how quickly things can go sideways. Believe it or not, there could come a point in time where banks could limit how much money you're able to pull out on a daily or weekly basis. And the easiest way to avoid a scenario like this is by pulling out cash as soon as possible. Now, you'll have to decide how much physical cash you want to keep on hand. But a one-month supply of cash, that's a good starting point. So, using the example above, a family with $5,000 of monthly expenses should have at least $5,000 in cash sitting in a home safe. Now, if you have a particularly safe location and you're not worried about the possibility of fire or burglary, two to three months of physical cash is a good idea. Next, he talks about making trade-worthy investments. And that means putting a bunch of money into the stock, instead of putting a bunch of money into the stock market, buy things that you could barter with during a depression. Now, this would include things like alcohol and liquor, tobacco, ammunition. It's pretty self-explanatory, right? Number six, find additional streams of income. In a depression, you can go from a successful career and stable position with your employer one day to no job and no career prospects almost overnight. The best way to insulate yourself from this threat is by proactively adding additional streams of income. The more jobs and hustles you have, the less likely you'll lose 100% of your income. Now, you might lose a good chunk of it if your primary employer fires you, but you still have a few different methods for generating income. This will serve you well when stuff starts hitting the fan in an economic collapse. I, I like the way, I think it's Zuby. Zuby Music, the way he put it, was having multiple sources, independent sources of income. That's the way to find security today. Well, Brian, that sounds like I'd be working harder. You might. Yes. This is exactly what I'm doing. And I am working harder than I've ever worked in my life. And it's not because, oh, we're just struggling to stay afloat. It's because I am trying to keep those independent streams of income going. So on the chance that one or more of them goes away, I have wiggle room. I have something to fall back to. So if we add this all up, in an economic crash or in a recession, collapse, or a depression, there isn't a lot you can do about it. 
If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. But you can, however, control how prepared you are. So by making smart choices today, you can lessen the impact it has on your family tomorrow. Handle what you can handle and forget about the rest. So says Larry Alton, and I think that's actually some really sound advice. Especially the part about learning how to not stress over the stuff that really is legitimately out of your control. Now that takes practice. But hey, what do young kids like us have to do with our time anyway, right? We just have to practice. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back. Just the other side of these messages. Stay close. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. By the way, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, it's a little something that you could use in your efforts to, uh, you know, conduct wrong think operations on a daily basis. It's resources for wrong thinkers, and I'm happy to provide them. All you need to do is go to my website, which is thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll notice my show notes section. Click on it. Go down to the bottom of the page where it says subscribe and drop your email address in there. I will send you a copy each day that I do the show. Just kind of a free bonus. You know, I won't I won't take your email and share it with or sell it to or otherwise allow anybody else access to it. But if you're serious about following up on these topics, this is a great way to do it. So I'm a little bit torn, and here's why. That uh, nearly billion-dollar fine levied against Alex Jones for comments he made regarding the Sandy Hook shootings have sparked a variety of reactions, okay? There's, it, there are a lot of people who have different, uh, different takes on this. The problem I'm having is two people whose opinions I really respect, Judge Andrew Napolitano, and also uh, Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation, have very different reactions here. Judge Napolitano sees that fine as an attack on Jones's free speech. Meanwhile, Jacob Hornberger says Alex Jones got what he deserved. Both of these guys are pretty staunch advocates for freedom, so who's right? Let me start uh, with, with, let's start with Jacob Hornberger's take. He says, whatever one might think about Alex Jones, it's difficult for me to understand how anyone can question the rightfulness of the multi-million damage awards that juries in Connecticut and Texas recently assessed against him. He says, in my opinion, Jones got exactly what he deserved. Now, Jacob Hornberger says, look, from a li- for limited government libertarians, the proper role of government is to provide a judicial forum in which people can resolve their legal disputes. If someone commits a wrong, a tort in legal language, against another person, The latter has the right to file suit against the former for damages. We see this all the time in automobile crashes where one person's negligence caused the accident. The victim has the right to sue the driver whose negligence caused the crash and recover the damages. Now, if the tort is intentional, such as murder or rape, then the victim has the right to sue both for compensatory damages and punitive damages. So he says the compensatory damages represent the actual damages suffered by the victim, like medical expenses, loss of income, pain and suffering. But the punitive damages represent an intent to punish the malefactor by inflicting additional damages on him. So in Jones's case, 
Jacob Hornberger notes that people filed suit against him for slander as well as intentional infliction of emotional distress, which he says has long been recognized by many jurisdictions as a tort. They also filed suit under Connecticut's Unfair Trade Practices Act. So the legal question that still needs to be resolved is whether punitive damages are recoverable by the Connecticut plaintiffs, given that Connecticut libel and slander laws permit punitive damages only with respect to recovery of attorney's fees, but uh, does permit punitive damages in cases involving unfair trade practices. So the lawsuits against Jones arose out of statements that Jones made suggesting parents of the victims of the Sandy Hook massacre made up their story and were just acting out the part of being victims who lost their children. And Hornberger says it's hard to get more slanderous than that. Jones's statements were clearly false and defamatory. Moreover, they subjected the plaintiffs to all sorts of attacks by people who believed that Jones was telling the truth. Now let's contrast that with Judge Napolitano's take. He says that the iconic language of the First Amendment can be recited by school children, but it's been ignored by judges in Connecticut when that speech has been uttered by Alex Jones. Since the modern interpretations of the First Amendment began in the late 1960s, Napolitano says opinions on matters of public interest have been protected speech, so long as some reasons for the opinions were articulated. For reasons, the reasons could be inaccurate, and the opinions can be wild, bizarre, or irrational, but if it is an opinion, it is protected speech, except in Connecticut and except if the speaker is Alex Jones. So here's the backstory. He says the tragedy of Sandy Hook in which a young madman used his parents' rifle to slaughter 20 children and six adults before killing himself is a lifelong horror for the surviving family members and their friends. This tragedy is tragedy rather is also a matter of public interest implicating the right to keep and bear arms, school security, mental health and free speech. When the first amendment was ratified, America was a bold experiment in personal liberty. Yet the First Amendment only restrained Congress. After the Civil War, amendments were added to the Constitution. The courts interpreted the 14th Amendment so as to apply the First Amendment to the states as well. Stated differently, in modern free speech jurisprudence, the First Amendment prohibits all branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial, and all governments, local, state, and federal, from interfering with or punishing freedom of speech. So if the First Amendment were repealed, he asks, would we have free speech? Those who believe the law is only what's written down, called positivism, positivism rather, would say no. Those who believe that our immutable rights come from our humanity, called natural law theory, would say we are naturally free whether the Constitution recognizes it or not. We all need to recognize the dangers of a state judiciary that writes down a negation of a fundamental liberty, expressing an opinion, by calling it a non-opinion. And he says, that's what happened to Alex Jones. After the Sandy Hook massacre, Jones opined that it did not happen as the press and government related it, that it was set up by anti-gun activists using actors and props. Now, he persisted in this and offered snippets of odd behavior by the participants in order to cast doubt on the official version of events. The government lies all the time, he argued. His speech was absolutely protected under modern jurisprudence. The controlling Supreme Court case is Brandenburg versus Ohio, which teaches that all innocuous public speech about matters of public interest is absolutely protected, even opinion, allegory, and satire. And all speech is innocuous when there is time for more speech to challenge it. When the parents of the murdered children sued Jones for defamation and mental distress, Jones moved to dismiss the complaints. 
When a motion to dismiss is filed, the courts must quickly rule on the law. They must answer the question. Question, rather. Assuming all the allegations are true, does the complaint state a valid lawful constitutional claim? The judge to whom these cases were assigned did not rule quickly. She improperly ordered discovery in exchange of documents between the litigants prior to ruling on the motion to dismiss. This was a cardinal error and utterly unnecessary, as in a motion to dismiss, the judicial mind assumes that the discovery will show that the plaintiff's allegations are supported. When the plaintiff's attorneys claimed that they found child pornography among the digitized documents that Jones's attorneys had sent them, Jones accused the plaintiff's attorneys of planning it. The court was so outraged, not at the presence of child pornography, but at Jones's allegations about the plaintiff's lawyers, that it summarily denied Jones's motion to dismiss by ignoring the teaching of Brandenburg and doing George Orwell one better by characterizing Jones's opinions as non-opinions. When Alex Jones declined to supply more discovery than he actually had, this same judge ruled as a matter of law that Jones's non-opinions had harmed the plaintiffs, and the only issues remaining in the case addressed the amount of damages Jones owed them. In a tendendacious opinion, Tendendacious opinion more conclusory than reasoned, the Supreme Court of Connecticut agreed. Thus, Jones's two recent trials addressed his wealth, not his liability. He was ordered to pay more than $1 billion. Now, Judge Napolitano says this is a profound injustice to Alex Jones and to all who are engaged in the opinion business, and it begs for a reversal. If the First Amendment says what it says, means what it says, rather, no government can abridge the freedom of speech. If the 14th Amendment means what it says and states may not take anyone's life, liberty, or property without due process, if due process means a fair ruling on the merits, then Alex Jones has not had his day in court. And the courts in Connecticut where his judicial demonization was met with public approval have emasculated his basic constitutional rights. In all other states, expressions of opinion on matters of public interest are absolutely protected as natural rights, and viewed as a means of challenging those discussing all sides of, a pu- of public issues. Only in Connecticut has a court system summarily, without a trial, and in defiance of precedent, declared an opinion to be a non-opinion, thereby stripping a litigant of his natural and constitutionally protected rights. So Judge Napolitano says, for those who value freedom, this is a time to recall Voltaire, who's credited with, I disagree with what you say, but will defend to the death your right to say it. Alex Jones has the largest viewership in the podcast world, larger than the television networks. And Judge Napolitano says, now we know what the government does to silence its most effective critic. So, I know Jacob Hornberger has been receiving a bit of pushback on this, and, and it's, it's very rare for me to disagree with him. I think I'm probably more leaning towards Judge Napolitano's take on this, and, and not because I think that Jones did the right thing and that's what all of us should do. I think Jones was, was wrong. I think he was wrong. But I also see that this is something that could quickly morph into a tool to suppress the expression of opinions that, uh, that are unpopular or perhaps uh, damaging to those in power. And I don't know about you, but my ability to freely speak my mind, I take that pretty seriously. I try to use it responsibly. I just wonder if this is uh, setting in motion something that could be weaponized and used to shut down the larger part of free speech. I hope not.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Again, I just want to tell you how grateful I am to have the opportunity to do this on a daily basis. And this is made possible by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, and HSLAmmo.com. In fact, you'll find links in my show notes to each of these sponsors. And it would mean a lot to me. If you need their product or you need their service, please consider doing business with them. All right, having said that, let's dive into this last segment here. Got two great articles I'd like to share with you, starting with the one from Robert E. Wright. I had Robert on the program here just a, a couple of weeks ago. Want to have him back, too. This is a fascinating guy. He is, he is one of my favorite writers in that he can take some very complex subjects and distill them down to the point where even a simple guy like me can understand what's going on. And in particular, he's got a great article here about how, you know, it's one thing when a crisis arises unexpectedly, but when government has to start concocting crises to justify expanding its power, well, we have a problem. He says, due to the collapse of totalitarianism and the concomitant uh, rise of economic freedom in the 20th century, the rate of human progress became so rapid that paternalists and others bent on augmenting their own political power had to begin concocting crises to justify their preferred policy prescriptions. And here he backs this up with some charts and says, here's what the UN's Human Development Index looks like over the last three decades, and each line represents a country. So while a few of these, like Somalia, Syria, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, etc., collapsed, many others saw steady to amazing gains, leading to a clear annual increase in the world average until 2020. The most likely cause? Economic freedom. The percentage of companies or countries rather rated as free by Freedom House increased from 25 in 1975 to 46 by the late 2000s. And while the percent rated not free decreased from 41 to 22 over that same span, those rated partially free hovered around 30% throughout. But he says right on cue, the percentage rated free started to wane in 2020. Well, in that same year, the percentage rated not free exceeded 28% for the first time since 1984. Steady increases in freedom and human development was great news, right? Not for those who abhor classical liberalism and abjure limited government. Robert E. Wright says the last three decades proved there was literally nothing for politicians and policymakers to do but to continue to relinquish power or find crises to exploit. And many chose the latter and became bearish on humanity. He says, I'm reminded of the description of those with short interests in securities traded on the, the Dutch stock market in the 17th century, as described by Jose de la Vega in his aptly entitled 19, or 1688 tract, Confusion de Confusiones. Sorry, I don't speak Spanish, so I'm going to butcher that. It says, quote, The bears, on the contrary, are completely ruled by fear, trepidation, and nervousness. Rabbits become elephants. Brawls in a tavern become rebellions. Faint shadows appear to them as signs of chaos. But if there are sheep in Africa that are supposed to serve as donkeys and weathers to serve even as horses, what is there miraculous about the likelihood that every dwarf will become a giant in the eyes of the bears? End quote. So in the telling of the bears, every bad thing that has happened in the last few decades portended doom. A handful of fanatics living in caves 10,000 miles away became an existential threat 
because they got lucky in in an attack that could never be repeated. Another slightly closer fanatic was said to possess yellow cake uranium when he only had yellow toilets made from gold. Every storm or drought became evidence for cataclysmic climate change. In 2008, the Bears said that the near failure of a few big banks threatened to obliterate the economy and everyone's jobs along with it. Although the sums paid to bail them, paid to bail them out rather, instead could have funded ample unemployment benefits for everyone put out of work by a downturn and done so without creating massive moral hazard and hence sowing the seeds of future financial crises. Not even a decade later, a POTUS with an unusual communication style spelled out the end of our democracy, the bears growled. And when a new but hardly novel coronavirus began to spread throughout the globe, bearish public health officials conflated case fatality rates with infection fatality rates, thus sowing panic and confusion that only they could alleviate. Now, while all of that was going on, policy bears were also creating the illusion that income and wealth inequalities were soaring in America. Turns out, though, they weren't. In fact, AIER research director Phil Magnus and co-authors have proven that widely cited data published by three scholarly perma bears led by Thomas Piketty was wrong. Income inequality did not dip to low levels in the mid-20th century, only to roar back in recent decades. In fact, income inequality barely changed at all over the last century. But even if income inequality had followed Piketty's U-curve, average incomes have grown so strongly over the last century that it would not matter to anyone, presuming the situation was framed correctly. Would you rather make $10,000 a year when your neighbor makes $20,000, or would you rather make $100,000 when your neighbor makes a million? So along with flawed income inequality statistics, policy bears have been pushing the notion of a crisis in socioeconomic mobility. The claim is that Americans born poor are likely to remain poor, while those born rich will most likely die rich. The campaign was effective as a 2019 study in PNAS showed that Americans overestimate the intergenerational persistence in income ranks. In other words, they overestimate economic prospects for children from rich families and underestimate economic prospects for those from poor families. Now, Robert E. Wright says, admittedly, anecdotal evidence based on informal polling of college students also suggests that most Americans support a higher federal minimum wage because they grossly overestimate the percentage and age of the workers who earn the minimum wage. Many think minimum wage workers are older trying to support families when, in fact, about two-thirds are 24 or younger. So, all told, minimum wage workers, which in government statistics includes those who earn hourly wages and tips greater than minimum wage, constitute less than 2% of the workforce paid an hourly wage. That statistic surprised me, by the way. He says similar data for states with minimum wage laws exceeding the federal level proved difficult to find. They're undoubtedly higher, but nowhere near the level many Americans assume, given frequent dire accounts of the American dream and crisis. So, of course, none of this is to argue that the country or the world is perfect and we should all sleep easy. But he says the most dire crisis of all may very well be the ability of those seeking to usurp power to create the appearance of crisis from mere bat viruses, lucky strikes, and statistical shadows. That's some very solid advice. I've got a link to Robert E. Wright's article in my show notes. One other note that I wanted to share here, um, you know, Karl Marx, if you've ever read any of his writings, not just the Communist Manifesto, but, you know, his, his basic writings on economics, he has a real distrust of not only those who own the means of production, but landlords. Oh, 
Some of his most serious beef was reserved with landlords and other property owners. And of course, people today who are inclined to socialism still have that beef as well. There's an excellent article from Peter Jacobson from the Foundation for Economic Education, Why I Love Landlords. And I just wanted to share his example. This is just a quick story. Um, He has a really good point here. He says, last week, my heart sank as I stood staring at my water meter. I had shut off the water to my house, but the little triangle on the water meter was still spinning. In other words, I had a water leak. I was losing a gallon of water every four or five minutes. Now, it may not sound like much, but that's 9,000 gallons of water leaking into the ground outside my house every month. A slight uptick in my water bill tipped me off. Next month's bill would be much higher. But he said, higher water bills wasn't my main concern. A bigger one was the potential for sinkholes and foundation problems with that much water. He says, my house has a wraparound porch, which has a nice feature, until uh, something goes wrong under the porch. So he says, I called in a plumber who brought in a small team who dug up most of the water line with a backhoe, but they couldn't reach the part that was under the porch. So that left him with three options. I could take off the porch, dig out the dirt under the porch and foundation myself, or hire someone to do the digging. He opted to do the digging himself. Fast forward to Sunday at 2 a.m., I found myself lying down in the dirt in a dirt trench of my own making, carving out the mud to tunnel up from under my foundation to expose the old water pipe. And as I was digging, a singular thought rang in my head. I miss having a landlord. (laughs) Now, you can probably understand why he's saying that, right? I mean, anti-landlord sentiment's pervasive. They're a favorite target of celebrities and members of the journalism industry. Landlords are always dehumanized as leeches. They're just profiting off of everybody else. But landlords don't just sit around and do nothing. Their main role is to bear significant risk, and you're kidding yourself if you think that's not bringing value to the table. Now, as someone who is currently renting... You know, I try to take it just as easy as I possibly can. If something goes wrong, and things do go wrong. This is part of living, okay? Houses have difficulties. There are things that don't work. And and when you're the landlord, guess whose responsibility that is? Yeah, it falls right on your shoulders. So, yeah, water, water pipe breaks? Well, guess I'll call the landlord because it's the landlord's responsibility to take care of it. Unless you're the homeowner, in which case it's your responsibility. I think Peter Jacobson has a great article. If you want to check it out in its entirety, please go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll find it there. This is The Brian Hyde Show.